0: From the Preservation Maryland Studios in the Historic Podcast District of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Food is powerful. It has the ability to transcend artificial divisions and to unite. It can speak to our history and heritage if we're willing to listen or think with our taste buds. For today's guest, using food to tell a story is all a part of his daily work. Brent Rosen is the president and CEO of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and the Museum of the American Cocktail in New Orleans, Louisiana. So pack your bag, but don't bring any food. We've got that covered on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here, and I want to give you a hearty thanks for all your support this year. As 2020 draws to a final conclusion, thankfully, I wanted to let you know how much we appreciate your support and to let you know we could still use a donation or two to keep this podcast preserving well into 2021. So hop on PreserveCast.org to make a gift, and also, could you give us a five-star review? Also, I want to thank our friends at the 1772 Foundation who have kept us on the air telling stories that matter and connecting us in a time when we all need it. Now, let's get preserving. Brent Rosen, president and CEO, oversees the programming of NatFab, the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, and the Museum of the American Cocktail in New Orleans, Louisiana. He also works with affiliate museums, such as the Pacific Food and Beverage Museum in Los Angeles, California. Brent's job descriptions have varied, but his work as an attorney and consultant has involved coalition building, business development, marketing, fundraising, and developing and executing strategic plans. His experience in those areas, combined with his passion for food and culture, have led him to create a number of successful culinary experiences, publications, restaurants, festivals, and promotional activations before beginning at NatFab. Brent and his wife Caroline Neighbors Rosen live in a restored Creole cottage in New Orleans. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast. And today we're joined by Brent Rosen, who is the president and CEO of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and the Museum of the American Cocktail, in New Orleans. Uh, it's such a, a pleasure to have you here today and fun. Uh, looking forward to talking with you about all of this because um, it's such a fun topic. Um, but before we get started, we always uh, like to learn a little bit more about the people that we're talking to. So, uh, Brent, where did you grow up and when did you get bit uh, by this, this history and food bug?
1: So I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I have really been fortunate that my, my parents were into food when I was young. And they were regularly like going to new restaurants and had a, a group of friends they went out every Saturday with. And so it's food has been sort of an early part of my life. Neither of my parents cooked. So we sort of ate out and tried different things a lot. And then uh, I went to did undergraduate at Tulane in New Orleans. And so my formative years were really spent in this city full of food and culture and history. And I'd always been a bit of a history person. And so learning how all of our cuisines came together and and the history and the politics of of all of that, I found just fascinating. And after I lived in New Orleans, I I lived in D.C. for a while and and was doing some, some government affairs type work but also eating in all sorts of restaurants and, and getting out of town and trying things. And really food just became something that I, I fell in love with because of the experiences you can get from it. And, and then I was fortunate that my wife at the end is now the president of the uh, Tales of the Cocktail Foundation. But when we were sort of first married and, and coming up together, she did marketing for Mountain Valley Springwater. And so I was able to go to all sorts of food festivals and events and different things and just meet a lot of the the food people and learn firsthand, you know, where food came from. And it became a true passion. And so when I, when I moved to New Orleans the second time um, and had this opportunity to take over a food museum, I just jumped at it because it, it married a lot of the things that I'd become passionate about all into one thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense that... Um... New Orleans would be a place that triggered that because I don't think anybody can can visit New Orleans once and not get a sense for just the overwhelming power that food has food and drink I guess has on that city I mean it is it is as it seems it's as powerful as as jazz and architecture and everything else that makes New Orleans great I mean it's it's right there in that it is the the gumbo of of New Orleans that makes it such a great place
1: we uh you know it's something that we are very fortunate to have in New Orleans is a, a true cuisine. And, and cuisine, you know, if you want to define it, you know, there's some, some specific attribute thing has to include. But what it really is, is just a recognition and a widespread adoption you know, of certain techniques and ingredients and, and ways of, of cooking. And you can't really say that New York has New York food. New York has a lot of different food in it, but it all kind of sits shoulder to shoulder and, and is separate from each other. And, and maybe you can talk about a California cuisine, you know, with ingredient forward and very light and Mediterranean in style. But nowhere has what Louisiana and New Orleans have, which is a true unique cuisine that is recognized as such by not just locals, but everyone. People don't travel anywhere else to go to, you know, Jacksonville, Florida restaurants. But people come to New Orleans to go to New Orleans restaurants. <laughs> And and why we have that, I think, is is even more important than th- that is that we have it. And it comes from just years of a process of creolization. As as people come to here and are born here and come, you know, of age here, they are surrounded by these culinary traditions. But the traditions are broad enough and wide enough to adopt lots and lots of people into them so that it continues to grow and and evolves rather than you know, become something static and, and dead. And so, you know, we have so much, it, there's, there's, it's the well-understood, you know, French influence, but the influence of Africa can't be overstated, both in the ingredients, you know, okra and gumbo, and also everyone that was cooking food in this area, you know, was African-American, whether it was on a plantation, in a restaurant, in a home. And, and then you also have the Spanish, which, again, the French Quarter was built by the Spanish, not by the French not by the americans at one point there were almost as many sicilians in new orleans as there were in palermo and this was another major port of entry because new orleans was one of the busiest ports in the world i think it was the busiest port in the world up until the civil war and so because of that it was very inexpensive to go back and forth from europe to new orleans and so we have just an unbelievable community of of food influences but unlike other places, you know the the Irish, the African Americans, the Italians—they worked together. They lived in neighborhoods next to one another. French cultural tradition allowed for you know the education of of children that came from you know unmarried relationships. So there's just a whole bunch of of things that came together to make New Orleans just fabulously interesting. But also, I think just a great lesson for for everywhere that you know if when people work together, we get amazing things and, and to, you know, allow yourself to be influenced and to influence and, and to create that sense of, of no one owns gumbo. No one owns jambalaya. No one owns the po' boy. They're all of ours. And that's what makes them so great.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting too. and to your point about a lesson, there's a lesson in all of this and there's a lesson in, in the work, certainly that you do, um, at the food museum and, and, um, pleased to say I've been there. I uh, like to tell PreserveCast listeners when I've made it to these places. And uh, in this case, I've been there and had a cocktail there and ate, ate at the museum, which is a cool component of it. So maybe that's a good place for us to pivot because there's there's a lesson, as you say, to be learned from all of this. And not just what the the cuisine of of New Orleans, because you cover really all of Southern food, but Tell us about the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and then the Museum of the American Cocktail. Where did this idea originate from? How big is the museum today? How many people do you, do you welcome? I guess maybe pre-pandemic is the best way of looking at that. But to, in a nutshell, what is going on at the museum and what stories are you telling?
1: So the museum is, it turns 13 this year uh, as a physical you know space idea, et cetera. Um, We were founded by Liz Williams, who had a long career in museums and nonprofits in New Orleans and herself was a food historian. And she had written a, a good bit on New Orleans food and was one of the last generation of people whose Italian Sicilian heritage was still very much part of her life. She actually has a book coming out, you know, where her grandmother still spoke Italian. And she remembers going to the opera in the French Quarter, and and all of these things. The the first round of gentrification of the French Quarter was the removal of the Italian immigrants to allow for more hotels and more other things. And it's so you know, that happened in the twenties. And so you know history repeats itself, and and we can talk more about that you know as we go. But Liz really had this vision for a museum dedicated to the food and culture of the South, and and why the South is that. We are a unique region and that at different times we have been sort of in the lead and then in the past. And then because of this revival of interest in craft and heritage and products that sort of stand the test of time, the South sort of came back in vogue in a very interesting way where it had sort of been thought of as a backwater until people discovered country ham was good. And it had been thought of as kind of a backwater (laughs) until we started exporting shrimp and grits and crawfish boil. You know, it became, you know, now biscuits are everywhere. And there was a time when you couldn't get those unless a a nice older lady from the South baked them for you. And so there's there's very much an an interesting sort of current of, you know, with New Orleans and Charleston being early capitals of, of culinary culture, and then, you know, having... All of the different immigrant groups that have come to the South, not just, again, the the sort of traditional narrative of black and white, but, you know, with the South now, you know, encompassing Houston, which is one of the most globally diverse and interesting cities, you know, there is, South Florida. The South just has a lot to talk about. And, And it's an interesting region because of that. And so the museum is set up where we have exhibits on each of the Southern states. And the museum space was the Dryad's public market. So for for those of your listeners who've been to sort of the French market in New Orleans, at one time there were closer to a dozen of those spread out all across the city. So my building is, is the 1870s market today. And so it's had walls added, it has air conditioning now over the years. But because it was a grocery store, the museum is actually set up as if you visit a market stall for each of the Southern states. So it's very fun, it's very interactive. You can pick things up, you can touch things. And then we have our Louisiana collection, which is where we have a, a very big focus on um, restaurants of Louisiana, famous and, and not as well known. We have a wonderful collection of material from Chef Leah Chase, who is sort of the patron saint of the New Orleans culinary community who passed away a couple of years ago. And um, we have some amazing things of hers on display there. We have a really fun uh, exhibit about the differences in Cajun versus Creole, which is really interesting to people because, you know, someone would tell you, well, Creole is city food and Cajun is country food. And it's so much deeper and more interesting than that. And and we have a great area to learn about it. So the museum itself is, it's about 13,000, 14,000 square feet under roof. And then we have a, a very good sized garden. And in the garden, we grow lots and lots of Southern food and vegetables. So we have sugarcane growing. A lot of people have never actually seen what sugarcane looks like. Uh, We grow tomatoes and citrus and use those in our kids' programs. And then we have a pretty good-sized cocktail collection as well. And so the Museum of the American Cocktail was was its own museum for a time. And we became sort of the stewards of that collection uh, in 2014 and 15. And that occupies about a third of the museum space. And within the Museum of the American Cocktail, it's really focused on sort of the first use of the term and mention of cocktails, which is in the 1820s or so, up until the the kind of modern age of cocktails in the 70s, when things really, you know, went to... to uh, The cocktail scene was no longer good. <laughs> it was all pre-mixed drinks, sour mix, this mix... And then it was not until the, the very late 80s, early 90s that the people who founded the Museum of the American Cocktail brought the Manhattan back, brought the martini back, and, and the gin fizz and the gimlet. All of these drinks that had been popular before Prohibition had really been lost because the Prohibition killed conviviality in America for a long time. If you can think about right now, for, for, as a listener, Think of the places you go to eat that don't serve alcohol. Now imagine that's everywhere. (laughs) And and so you can realize what an impact that had on, you know, 20 years of, of prohibition sort of killed sophisticated dining culture in America. And during prohibition, since it was run by gangsters, it was another 20 years after prohibition before anybody who had any reputation they wanted to uphold would even mess with food and beverage because it was still so mob controlled so really prohibition took a 40-year bite out of the evolution of, of good food culture in america
0: and and now it seems like that you know there's been different kind of ups and downs and i even read something here locally we're yeah, obviously broadcasting out of maryland which today i guess is debatable for a, a southern state although i know we have an exhibit at, the, at the, the museum,
1: museum. So we count you.
0: Um, but, uh, some of, some of my Southern friends would, would maybe quibble today whether or not Maryland is a, a true Southern state, but historically, of course, South of the Mason Dixon, but, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, even, even, even to this day, um, there are, there are legacies of this and, you know, uh, there's been ebbs and flows is what I was going to say with cocktails where. You know, craft beer became a really big thing over the past 10 years. And so, you know, that has been the focus at restaurants. And now we're starting to see restaurants come back again with cocktails and that being a focus and craft liqueur and craft craft liquor that goes into it. So you're you're right. It it is interesting to think of it that way. And I had never really kind of put two and two together about prohibition and and sour mix. But uh, I'm I'm glad that that is that is has a waning influence.
1: Yeah, it was like a trade that lost 40 years of experienced members. And so, all people knew to do was put sour mix and whiskey together and call it a cocktail. Yeah,
0: and that—that uh, is—that is definitely. I guess I guess it's something. I'm not sure if
1: it's a cocktail, but um, so yeah. oh, it's not so much. I, I, you know, I don't want to come across as a snob because I am not in any way. It's it's more about there was a an a history, and then there was a great sort of the same way that happened with beer too. You know, just sort of a great homogenization and And now, what we're seeing is experimentation across the board in these areas and so it's 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 more interesting to be able to go to a city in Arizona and go to a city in Illinois and the cocktails be different because the culture is different and the things are different whereas you know the idea of a, you know, a fuzzy navel in, in every railroad bar in America you know that's cool too but it it doesn't tell you as much about the people who are doing it or or why it is what it is.
0: Yeah. I I think that that's, that's sort of a a statement of where we're at. And to your point about sort of this resurgence and interest in heritage and craft. And and obviously you guys are doing a a great job of telling that story through the lens of food. I'm curious if, you know, right now, um, given everything that's going on in this country um, from a pandemic to political partisanship to, you know, really big questions about race and the legacy of where we've been as a country, and we're reevaluating history, heritage, the way in which we tell all these different stories. How is that impacting food history and and your work?
1: There's a lot that's being impacted, and you know the the recent pandemic which forced us to close for almost six months, give or take, was a tremendous opportunity to think about what we were doing more from a, when you're just sort of every day on the run, we've got the museum, you know, beyond being a museum, we do cooking classes, we do events, we do a lot of rentals, a lot of kids programs. So to have a little time to actually think about what we were doing more was, as much as it was terrible financially, it was great from a... How do, what is our collection doing? And then when you layer in the, the social justice moment and the, and the big look inward, what I think we realized, and, and if you, you know, work in a museum setting or a preservationist setting, it doesn't occur to you all the time that what you're doing is in some way political. And, and I'll give credit to Liz, our founder, because you know we have some things in the museum that I don't understand. Um, like we have boxes of chocolates from the 50s, and I have no nostalgic connection to those. They just sort of look like old packages. And then I see someone who's in their 60s or 70s come in and get a tear in their eye because that was something their grandmother gave to them. What Liz helped me understand was everything will be historic someday. So don't write things off now because you don't think they're important. You'd have no idea what will be important in the future. And And that I did understand, what I've come to understand is those decisions are political and and the nostalgia being triggered is different for all people because they're bringing themselves to it and so what we looked at is that we have an amazing collection of artifacts. we have all kinds of stuff, but what we didn't have a lot of were the stories behind the stuff and And when you look at that if if someone wanted to come into the museum and find erasure of marginalized voices, I think you could, but there's not really majoritarian voices either, because we weren't set up that way. We were really set up to be something that showed the products in the history and, and didn't look at those deeper stories. And so the, that forced us during this great period of inward looking to say, why aren't we doing that? Because isn't that really when you get beyond the the first level of, oh, that's interesting, what comes next? And, and I can give you a couple of examples of things that we've done at the museum that I, I thought were really, that we wouldn't, I don't think we would have done was it not for these these moments of really thinking about it. And the first was an exhibit we did on appliances. And we have a whole bunch of old appliances in the museum, amazing old ovens, old refrigerators, like original can openers, things that nobody really has seen for years. And we arrange them in this really neat display, almost like you would do, you know, at an art museum if you were doing a furniture exhibit. And then I started to look at it and I said, guys, aren't we just doing what we always do, which is taking stuff, arranging it very beautifully and telling people what it is. And I said, let's go one level deeper. And really, you know, electrification was a big deal. Let's learn more about it. And what we ended up, you know, doing a lot of research on was the sort of social justice impacts of electrification in the United States. Because you, we all know, you know, this idea of the digital divide between those who have broadband and those who have, you know, no internet. Imagine what the divide was like for those who had electricity and plumbing and those who did not you are not living in the same world as people who had those things if you didn't. And so we, we looked into, you know, how was electricity distributed? And, and it was not distributed fairly and equitably until the government stepped in in the 30s and 40s and created things like the TVA and then used the power of the uh, federal government to force, they would not insure loans for substandard housing anymore. And substandard meant not electrified and not plumbed. So basically, if you wanted to be able to, you know, work with the federal government and have your, your loans backed and guaranteed, you had to do that uh, and, and electrify them. And that was really fascinating. And then we said, okay, well, let's find the advertisements for the original appliances that must have run in, you know, the African-American newspapers, the Chinese-language newspapers, the Russian-language newspapers. Let's find some neat, diverse advertising. And you wouldn't believe it, but there isn't any. And then we thought, okay, that's worth some further research. And what we found was the same ad agency that General Motors hired to teach it how to sell cars in a mass market taught them how to sell refrigerators. And what they told them was make a standard model and then have add-ons just like you do with your cars. But what you want to do is advertise directly to the middle class because wealthy people and people who are not, you know, middle class and lower class, they can all see themselves in the middle. But if all you have is people in tuxedos and evening gowns selling your refrigerators, you're alienating 75% of the country. But if it looks a little too common, then maybe wealthy people will think it's not for them. And so they created this idea of essentially the servantless housewife who was exactly average. She was white. She had three kids. She lived in the suburb. And that became what they put into, the, that was the image of a refrigerator owner. That's all fine and good, except it became self-reinforcing. And so soon the idea of a normal American family became that white middle-class suburban family because every image you saw of normal was that. And so suddenly there wasn't room for same-sex couples, people of color, people who just didn't want to have kids. That that. And so it was interesting how what was meant to sell refrigerators in the 30s, by the time we got to the 50s and 60s, had become so normalized that we're still to this day tearing that kind of stuff down. And, and so that's, that's where I think our museum, gets interesting. So it, it is neat to see, you know, the old appliances, the old ovens and, and the neat colors. But I think it's even neater to understand the impact that this stuff had on culture and the biggest takeaway that that we want people to understand after they leave this particular exhibit is one you know how this this idea of of the you know modern family came to be but two the the unbelievable savings in time that electrification brought and so in the 19 early 1900s something like 68 hours a week was spent on average on housework putting up clothes, preserving food, you know, all of these things that you want us to do to, you know, keep a home running. And by the 90s it was 14 hours a week. So essentially a full-time job and a half was eliminated from the home because of electrification and appliances. And so again, the beneficiaries of that were very clearly women who at one time had been basically made to do that work. And, and the, the sudden availability of, of time, I, I read an amazing article, and I'm, I'm not a, a big Marxist, but they referred to it as the imbourgeoisment of the home. And that suddenly the values of the market had come into the home place. And, and that's, but it's true. Women, women in general could not find equality with men because there weren't opportunities to work. And, and that changed with appliances. And it created a, a sort of whole new world that we are now living in. And, and that's fascinating. And, and I think more so than just you know, displaying the appliances. So that was one, I thought, really neat story that we found. And then another, um, one of the people who I work with is from South Carolina, and we have this bag of Carolina gold rice. And I've never, again, thought much about it. And she is, would it encourage me to take a look at a book called Black Rice. And so I read this book and and what the book explains, and it's an academic book that um, I don't know how long ago it came out, but it's, it's one of the university presses. But it is the story of how rice was independently domesticated in Africa beyond the domestication of rice in China. And it was those people from Africa who were sort of purposely enslaved and brought to the Carolinas to transfer rice culture from Africa to the lowlands of the Carolinas. And the woman who wrote the book, the professor, was able to study the irrigation systems in the sort of Gold Coast of Africa and the Senegambia area and see that the way rice irrigation was done there is exactly how it was done in the Carolinas. Well, for 500 or so years, rice cultivation in the Carolinas was thought of as the accomplishment of the planter And the idea for rice coming from Africa was attributed to the Portuguese sailors who were picking up people who had been enslaved and bringing them to the New World. So really, the the entire African origin of rice in the Americas had been erased. And it was not difficult looking at the archaeological record and the historic record to see that this major accomplishment and really the backbone of American cuisine in the Tidewater was a a product and a development and an innovation of enslaved people. And so we all know, I think, that, you know, the story of slavery is bad. What I don't think has been revealed enough is the human stories within that that sort of have been erased because it's been possible to where Carolina Gold Rice is black rice. And it's a much more interesting story to know that than it is to just think, you know, rice spontaneously grew from the the swampy tidewatery areas of the Carolinas. And so, you know, I think there had been in the past, some sense that to tell these stories was insulting to some group, or, you know, was creating a sense of victimization in another, or would be offensive to a board, um, you know, board of directors or a community. And I think this great accomplishment of the last six months has been to no longer, this is, these are the stories people want to hear. If someone is telling you that, you know, you've gone too far with this, they're wrong and you're not. Because this is what people are demanding. People want to know what's real and authentic about their food and their cultures. And without knowing that, you really can't be an informed participant in a lot of the, the modern food conversation you know about you know what is appropriation and and what is appropriate and you know who works for who and why lots of that is is all based in our history and and to sort of create these black boxes where we just don't look into that subject too hard it it gives it takes away a lot of human agency and interesting stories from some and allows others to sort of skate on past stuff that really does need to be fully recognized and and reconciled
0: well having been to the museum i knew we probably were going to get a good answer on what you guys are doing and, and how you're changing that narrative um i didn't know it was going to be quite that good i mean that really gives everyone a sense um listening to this uh about the seriousness in which you in the way you would approach this work um and uh, I guess again we have Madison Avenue to thank uh, for some of some of our longstanding and and pervasive problems in terms of uh, the the average housewife, the average home, um, all those sorts of things that that you you put yeah, together there. Yeah, it
1: it, it it fascinated me, and and I I was glad that we did just say to ourselves, "What if we looked one step further?" Because it opened up this entire sort of. Line of thinking, you know about how a consumer system that's built to sell products, you know, is not necessarily one that is built for equity and representation. And you know, I think that that's that's something that we're having big conversations about right now without, I think, fully understanding the history of it is is very recent and and very much not on you know, any one side other than selling stuff. And and I think that that is its own sort of interesting issue. So um,
0: how do you define Southern food? Obviously, at the outset, you talked about New Orleans cuisine and how that is unique to that area and that there isn't really a cuisine of, say, Jacksonville, for example. There might be a Charlestonian cuisine, I don't know, maybe arguably. But How do you define Southern food? And then from there, we're gonna pivot to some rapid fire questions about some of your favorites.
1: Wonderful. Um, So I just, so we have a book coming out, probably two years now, just with COVID, that I just wrote the introduction for, and literally this was the question. So I I have some, some thoughts on this. And, you know, I think there's, the South has an interesting relationship with its history. And it's sort of, there's this inherent tension of reverence for tradition with the constant innovation that has been happening in the South forever. And I think that that is in its, you know, in its own way, you know, to answer the question, what is Southern food? I I think you have to recognize that what's really the central conflict in the South is this conflict between its past and its future. So Southerners, you know, all things being equal, are more agrarian, more traditional, and sort of more interested in in talking about heritage than the other parts of the country. But at the end of the day, the South is still part of America, and and there is no really stopping this, this sort of drive of the homogenization that, you know, was part of, a big part of American culture forever where you know it, there was no longer regional products but national products national brands supermarkets instead of the local store all of that came a little later in the south but it came and in the traditional narrative of the south you know there's sort of the the meat and threes and the biscuits and the barbecue and all of that is definitely southern food but then you know there's also newer immigrants to the South and in Louisiana in particular, got an enormous influx of people from Central America after Katrina. And now you can go to the overpass next to the Lowe's in New Orleans and get an incredible taco. Is that not Southern food? There are wonderful Middle Eastern owned gas stations, truck stops on the sides of the roads in Tennessee and Mississippi and in Georgia where you can get things like samosas in the hot box right next to, you know, fried catfish. Is that not Southern food? And, and so I think, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in defining Southern food as broadly as if someone is eating it right now in the South, it's Southern food. And, and I think that that goes back to, in a way, what we talked about with New Orleans, which is if you can't absorb everyone who comes in then you don't really have something you can call a cuisine. And, uh, and I'll, get off, I'll take off my historian hat for a sec and just talk about what I'm really interested in food today. And, and I think really the most interesting restaurants, and, and this is not my thinking, but really I think sort of the, the consensus of, of food people is that it's first, in generation, first and second generation immigrants to America with culinary training using the food of sort of their upbringing and their culture, mixed with techniques and ingredients of the United States. And so you look at what's going on in Los Angeles or what's going on in the Pacific Northwest. Those restaurants are really interesting because what they're doing is Creole food. And and I think the term fusion has a really bad rap because when you talk about fusion cuisine, you know, people think about like wasabi whipped into mashed potatoes and and just silly stuff. <laughs> but what what's truly interesting is when someone takes who they are and then adds their culinary training and the ingredients available to it to make something new. And and the reason why Louisiana has a better food culture than the rest of the Americas is that the British were extremely reluctant to adapt to this new world. They wanted their bread made from grain. They weren't gonna mess with other things. They wanted to eat English people food. Whereas the French got down to Louisiana, saw an alligator and said, oh, it is a French alligator. Uh-huh, let's make sauce picante. You know, there was, and whereas can you imagine a British person eating a giant lizard? It's impossible. And so that's what made our cuisine great. And so when you look around and you see these, these hotbeds of, of sort of culinary excitement, what you're really seeing is that. People who have a cultural heritage and background of another place coming to this new place, finding its ingredients, and then beginning to work with them and making something brand new that, that may be better than either of where it started. And so that, that's what Southern food is to me. Because if, if you want to define the South as a region that has sort of been constantly bringing in new people and absorbing them, you know whether those people have been fully absorbed or not is a different conversation, but the culinary traditions, in lots of ways, have. And so that's a very long sort of of way of getting around to this idea that you know if you're too narrow in your definition of southern food, you are you're excluding some of the most interesting parts, be, just because they're too new, <laughs> and 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 you want to think about the South in this old you know the 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 biscuits and the gravy and the collard greens and the pork and and instead of doing you can tell an easier and more narrow story that that has sort of a clear arc but southern food is about more than than just our past it has to be incorporative and ready so that when you know again i'll use new orleans as an example but we brought a lot of people from Vietnam to the the Greater New Orleans area after the Vietnamese War. And because Vietnam had also been a French colony, many of our traditions were the same. Because the Mekong Delta and the Mississippi Delta are a very similar ecosystem, many of our traditions were the same. And now we have a very thriving Vietnamese population in Greater New Orleans. And so everyone here is familiar with pho but we're also familiar with banh mi. We sort of just call them Vietnamese po'boys because essentially they are. And and in that incorporation, it, it makes it to where it's all of ours again. It's like we've added to the boy canon more than Vietnamese people came and took the po' boy. And I think that there's something very exciting about that. And, and the South has always done that. It just, it, it hasn't always done it in a way that's been recognized.
0: Yeah, it hasn't always done it, and, and or, or recognized or maybe embraced it, or or identified yeah. it, or, or those sorts of things. So it said um, really said what it's doing. Yeah, yeah. So as we um, as we move to a conclusion here, we got to we got to. I want to roll through some of these questions because I don't want to um, miss them here. Which is, and this is going to be difficult in in context of what you just told us about what Southern food is and how it's constantly evolving, but. Do you have three favorite Southern dishes? And then as a follow-up to that, do you have three favorite cocktails?
1: Yes. Okay. So my three favorite Southern dishes are tra- you know, tra- traditional category. I I love fried chicken, especially fried chicken wings that are breaded. Um, cornbread. And I'm a Midwesterner, so I add sugar and whatever. And then... Uh, I finally got good at cooking field peas when I lived in Alabama for a while. And whether you call them beans or peas, you know, the little delicate green things are just my absolute favorite. And then if you wanted to talk about more, you know, not as traditional, they, there is no better dish than a, a shrimp po' boy. And I love when barbecue is used as ingredients in tacos. So sort of Tex-Mex style, you know, where you can get a brisket taco with pickled red onions and some green sauce is just wonderful. And then you don't want to leave out baking. And, uh, you know, we have the the icebox pies of the South, you know, where you can make a, a peanut butter pie. Or what's the, the green? It's like a minty thing. There's a cocktail bit it is, too. Grasshopper. Grasshopper. Or pie, you know those things where you just kind of whip it together and stick it in the fridge. I love those
0: too. And then cocktails, since you also oversee the Museum of the American yeah. Cocktail.
1: Um, so I love an old fashioned, and um, I, I drink a lot of those. I like a martini, very dry, usually with vodka. And then uh, I consider the Pimm's cup just sort of in the same way that an appetizer gets you ready to eat more food. I think a Pimm's cup gets me ready to drink more drinks. For some reason, that just kind of opens it all up and, and gets me ready to go. So I, I'm known for a, a, a couple Pim's and then a martini as a, as a ease into a long New Orleans lunch. A Pim's Cup. So, sort of a very British answer there. Uh,
0: yeah. And, I think, well, I think yeah, you and the Queen sure. would like those together.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the Napoleon House here in New Orleans, I think they may be the like, eighth largest seller of Pim's in the world. It's some, they're in the top ten. <laughs> I cannot remember which one. But they've been, they've been doing a Pimm's Cup in the Napoleon House for since Napoleon was around.
0: Well, I'm, I'm pleased to say I do have PIMS in my cabinet. So uh, I, guess, I guess that's a good thing. So if people want to find out more about you and, and in particular more about the museum, they're planning a trip to New Orleans when all of this craziness is over and they want to come visit you, where do they find you online?
1: Um, so our website is southernfood.org, which is pretty easy. Um, We're on Facebook. You can just search Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Um, our Instagram is eat, drink, SoFab. And, and you can look us up on uh, podcasts if you're interested. It's tip of the tongue is Liz Williams. We also have uh, the NOLA Drinks podcast with a gentleman named Brian Diaz. And then I'm doing one on meat and meat history with Dan Robert. That is the uh, SoFab Meat Lab podcast. So those are all easy to search for or just visit our, our Facebooks, websites, all that. And we're easy to find.
0: Well, if the preserve cast listeners uh, can't get enough good food content just from this episode, which they can't, then uh, it sounds like you, you've got them covered, particularly with that that meat podcast, which I, I feel like I have meat to turn into. Is
1: fun. you're you'd be amazed at the differences and in, in like sausage culture from one state to another. And it's all about where people came from. So again, you know, getting into that idea of, you know, how does our culture you know, people, the German immigrant population in Wisconsin was different than Indiana. So they make Brockwurst differently. It's, just, it's wild when you think about, you know, Brockwurst can be that regional and specific.
0: Well, you had me at, at sausage culture. So, so I'm, <laughs> I'm there. Um, and before we depart, last and final question before you run um, What's your favorite historic place or site? <sighs>
1: uh, you know, so I grew up in St. Louis. I'm fascinated by the Cahokia Mounds. I just, I think that whole thing is amazing. Um, my favorite historic place to eat is is Galatoire's, I would say. And and while they may not be as historic as Arno's or Antoine's, they are uh, in that same, you know, era of just classic old New Orleans restaurants that really are like going to a cocktail party that serves food while you're seated more than they are a the restaurant idea. You know, I, I love the... They're just sort of lifestyle of those old grand dame French restaurants of lunch can be three or four hours. If you want to stay all day, they'll bring the menu back out and you can have dinner. And that's called playing through. And so, you know, to eat it in the old fashioned way, that's, that's my favorite. I, I, I love that idea of playing
0: through to dinner. Playing I think that's pretty through, cool. Yes. I need dinner. Why not? Maybe next time I come down, you and I can play through at a restaurant.
1: I would be I would be happy to do that, and uh, and I know a few places. Hopefully, they'll be open again by then.
0: Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. So much fun to talk with you. So great to to hear about the good work that you're doing, and wish you all the best success as we come out of COVID and people get back on the road visiting places. Um, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much.
1: Yeah, this is great. Anytime, and uh, next time you're in New Orleans, or next time I'm in your neck of the woods, we'll uh, we'll have a drink. Have great. a good one, and thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support and remember to keep preserving.